Welcome to a special Encore presentation of Compassion Radio. What are you seeing about their ability to comprehend and to see the person behind the words on that page? Some people are better at it than other people. <laughs> yeah. It is a social skill. It's social media, and it involves a social IQ. They see any disagreement as an attack, yeah. any difference of opinion as something to go to war over. You don't know if the person's saying it with a smile on their face or a twinkle in their eye, or if they're saying it foaming at the mouth as a raging lunatic. Yeah. It's like a Rorschach test. You can read in people's comments all kinds of things that just aren't there. A funny thing happened on the way to the dojo. God showed up. Hi, friends, and welcome back to Compassion Radio, the daily radio journal of all the things that faith finds itself involved in once it says yes to the Holy Spirit. Today is part two of a lively conversation with James Michael Smith, an enterprising theologian, spiritual mentor, and a martial arts expert. Have you ever asked God what he can do with what you have? Well, James did, and it took him all the way to the Middle East, where a dream was born to reach out to kids stuck in refugee camps with life skills and survival training, something needed for the most vulnerable people on the planet. Well, to riff on a famous old adage, the best laid plans of mice and men often seem to go awry. When the first plan didn't come to pass, God opened for James another unexpected opportunity that has become a solid vocation and a lifelong call. You'll hear more about that today. Thanks for joining us. We're back today with another discussion with James Michael Smith, <laughs> Old Testament scholar, disciple Jojo, and one heck of an all-rounder guy that loves especially young people. But as a younger theologian, I mean, I know there are younger theologians than you out there, but you have actually dedicated yourself, as you said yesterday, you're a Gen Xer. I'm a generation just right before you, so I get it. We're trying to become digital fluent, understand the world as it's evolving around us. It's very strange compared to when you and I were kids. The language changes, the way we communicate, the way we even perceive symbols on a screen is different than you and I learned in reading and writing when we were kids. That also applies to those deeper things, the spiritual things, our emotional language, our social Absolutely. fluency, as you mentioned in yesterday's program. Tell me about the effects on that first cohort, if you want to call them that, and what's become of those relationships since the time you taught the class. Well, it was a six-year thing. Mm -hmm. We started in Genesis 1, and we taught chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Bible. I told them when we started, guys, listen, there's no schedule. There's no timeline. There's no reading plan. It wasn't a get-together time with prayer requests. And No, this is not your church. This is a Bible study. And because it was an hour, it was 30 minutes of eating, 30 minutes of study, and then back to work. The nature of the thing lent itself to it being something people could come to and track where they were through the book. And if they missed some weeks, they could catch up on the podcast the weeks that they missed and be right there. Mm -hmm. For about six years, we were in the Torah, mm. in Joshua and Judges and Ruth. That's where we got before COVID hit. The week that COVID shutdown happened, we were going to start First Samuel. COVID shut it down, and we haven't been able to do it since then. That's why I've been moving my teaching to our, the YouTube channel. Over the course of that time, they started to make friends with other people that they never knew. I mean, you would never have a retiree crossing paths with a 20-something-year-old mm -hmm. executive bank worker. Their paths would not cross normally. But they met each other on Tuesdays, 
And that's how some friendships formed. And and I'm sure I know of some that were strengthened and I know some that were there for four or five, six years, got to know each other. After COVID shut down, we kind of all went our separate ways. So I don't know where many of the mm-hmm. people are, but I know they were all involved in their own churches. And mm-hmm. I just trust the Lord in his timing that for the season that we had it, it was pretty good. And may that season come again. Yes, I'd love for it to happen again, and I'm trying to get the wheels turning to do something similar in the evening time instead of lunch. But what people came away with was the Old Testament is as much my Bible as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mm. And that's what I wanted them to really see. Amen. I tell you, the thing I've been seeing and what I've been hearing from people, the verses they quote, all the kind of stuff that gets thrown up on Facebook, especially when they're trying to prove a point— is going to be something lifted out of a epistle, and it'll be kind of eisegesis where it's just way out of context. Or it's going to be some really heavy-fisted rule out of the Old Testament, or maybe a psalm or something. I've rarely at this point hear people quoting the Gospels, where they're saying, this is what's moved my heart right now. In other words, where Jesus actually lived and did his work, which was the forward interpreting, the bringing to life all those things that the Old Testament had. So I wonder about that. I wonder if it's kind of a spiritual issue we're having, that we would much rather just kind of ping these little single floating thoughts out there, but not have to really deal with what Jesus was going through and how he dealt with this Old Testament that seems so opaque or thick. I remember Gordon Fee, I think, was the one that said the worst thing that ever happened in Bible translation history was they added verses. Mm, There you go. And I 100% agree with that. I think that adding verses to the Bible did way more damage than good, because what it did was it cut the Bible into tweetable sound bites that their context didn't really matter that much. Well, Eugene Peterson got in a lot of trouble just for trying to strip that out of there to put it back into be a narrative read, and of course they forced him to put the verse numbers back in the future editions. Now it's all the rage, though, which I'm glad to see with Reader's Bibles. uh, It seems like every publisher is coming out with a Reader's Bible where, if anything, the references are at the top of the page, Mm -hmm. which I don't mind that. You know, you do want to be able to find your place in a book. But knowing that they didn't have that ever in the history of the Old Testament, what I try to tell people is if you and I were talking and I said, hey, remember when uh, Dorothy said to Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore? Yeah. We share that memory of that movie we would know the scene. Right. Go to my friends in India or in parts where they've never seen The Wizard of Oz. I can't say that. I would have to say, okay, it's in the page number of the script or the scene number, something like that. Yeah, script is a good word for that because I think in terms of how Jesus, when he steps up to announce his coming in the synagogue and it reads from Isaiah, obviously the liturgy of the year had him landing in that synagogue on that date while the scroll of Isaiah would be read. And as you know from having seen the way they do it, it's a very physical thing. You pull a book out of the trunk, and the whole congregation sees what it is, the wholeness of it. How big is it? How thick is it? Oh, we're going to really get into a big one now. Like Isaiah was a large book compared to the minor prophets. And they meant minor prophets because they were smaller scrolls. That's all they meant by that. So they would literally have expectations for how big or rich the story was going to be just by looking at the scroll that the cantor would be holding before the teaching began. And like we we have expectations that are genuinely visceral from having seen that. We look at our Bibles now, they're mostly electronic, mine is too. I don't realize how deep or how big this thing's going to be when I go straight to a verse. I have no idea what ocean I'm even swimming in. Hmm. How do you get people into the realm that their predecessors would have experienced when they approached the Word of God? Well, we can never duplicate it because of our culture 
Mm-hmm. And because as much as we may want, Christian church will never look like the synagogue. Mm-hmm. There will never be long, uninterrupted readings of Scripture. I would love that. I wish <laughs> churches would, hey, we're going to read the entire letter of the Corinthians today, and we're just going to read it. No sermon, no PowerPoints, but that's never going to happen, at least in this culture. There is actually one exception to that that we discovered, and that was at Karen Heimbuck's reading through of the book of Revelation, when that was fully orchestrated and performed as a performance piece, became like the opera of the scripture. Oh, that's a great book to do that to. Yeah, and she read through the entire thing, set to an incredible score. So that thing is like, a, I think, a missing gem within modern Christian culture. To read the scripture and feel it as we would feel it now. When we go to a Marvel movie or something, we expect there to be, from the bottom of our souls, the top of our heads, something happening to us. It's not just about the words on the page. It's about everything we're immersed in. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And Revelation's a great book to do that with. Probably of all the New Testament books, that would be the one to start with. I'm glad to hear about that. I would love to see that for all the books of the Bible. There you go. I think the closest we've come to that right now is the Bible Project videos. Mm, Yes. Because the way that I present the Bible to people, especially people that aren't very familiar with it, is the big picture first. Mm -hmm. Like I have a video on my YouTube page talking about putting a puzzle together. And you put a puzzle together by building the frame, the edges, Mm -hmm. and then you start filling in those edges. And the pieces that you can't make fit, you just set them aside and you keep filling stuff in and eventually those pieces will fit. And so I think with biblical study, that's the way I encourage people to approach it. Get the big picture of scripture first. Here are the Mm -hmm. five, or some people would say seven, movements of scripture. And then once you've got those movements, now jump into the Old Testament and zoom into a particular part. So here's the Torah. Here's what it's about. Okay, now here are the historical books. Here's what happened. Here's the prophets. And doing that, it's like a camera lens that gets more in focus Mm -hmm. until it's crystal clear. Now, it'll never be crystal clear because we'll always have things that we see through a mirror darkly. But the goal should be ever sharpening our focus of what scripture says. And so if you start big, like this is the story, then it gives them like a clothesline. They can hang it on there and go, okay, this is here. This is here. This is here. Okay. This thing's starting to make a little more sense now. Well, help us to hang our hats on this. Give us a a taste of what it's like to when you prepare people to understand that we're jumping into a big story. What would you say first? The way I break down the Bible in my own teaching is five movements the corner pieces of the puzzle, so to speak. You know, in a puzzle, the four corner pieces are the easiest ones to find because they have two flat sides. Well, think of this as like a pentagonal because there's five of them. Not a perfect analogy, but... (laughs) Chinese checkers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Creation in the fall is the first part, and it's everything from Genesis 1 through 11. Yeah. What I call the preface to the Bible. Mm -hmm. If listeners have seen the Lord of the Rings movie, the Peter Jackson adaptation... This is the perfect analogy. What the writers of that movie had to do was squeeze hundreds of pages of backstory and lore and entire volumes of history of Middle Earth into like a 10-minute, five-minute voiceover before the title even shows up. And so they did it, and they did it beautifully. So that when you get to the title, Fellowship of the Ring, and then little Frodo Baggins or Gandalf or whatever appear you know that the story is going to be ultimately about this one ring and these rings of power and the battle to seize control of this ring of power. Mm -hmm. And that's the thread that winds its way through that introduction that then when you get to this guy, Bilbo Baggins and Frodo Baggins and Gandalf, you know, oh, they're the little family, the little characters, literally little, that are going to take this (laughs) whole story over. But if you had just started there, 
it wouldn't make much sense. You wouldn't have that epicness of the story. So Genesis 1 through 11 is that for the Bible. It, it tells us this God created and creation went bad and God has a plan to renew and restore it and put it back on track. And then it begins in part two of the Bible, Genesis 12, with the call of Abraham. Mm -hmm. And Abraham and his descendants, his seed, Isaac, Jacob, and then the sons of Israel, and then the kingdom and all of that, that's all God's plan to put back right what went wrong in that first opening preface. Compassion Radio will continue to keep bringing you encouragement from the Word, inspiring stories from the front lines of faith, and awesome opportunities to make a difference for the kingdom around the world. But we need your help right now to continue doing just that. Friends, we're focused right now on the current crisis in and around Ukraine. I personally met with dozens of refugees and kingdom workers who ran to the front lines of need and have selflessly given of themselves completely, thoroughly, and as I saw to the point of indescribable exhaustion. I saw a refugee and servant alike shiver in a vicious blizzard that struck the first week of March. They were very much alike in one important way. They were absolutely determined to survive this ordeal and to redeem what their lives have become. We need to follow their example. Will you help us today? We have blankets and food to buy, tanks to fill with gas, and medicine to help them survive the days ahead. This need is not going away anytime soon, even as this rescue operation rapidly sweeps the refugees farther west away from the fighting. Friends, really, we need you now to step up. Please, give generously, even sacrificially, right away. I know that God will be pleased if we do. So call us today at one 800 868 2478. Mail us at P.O. Box 2770, Orange, California, 92859. Text the word COMPASSION to 53445 or give online at CompassionRadio.com. Bless you, friends, for your brave and activist faith. And now, back to our discussion. Abraham and his descendants, his seed, Isaac, Jacob, and then the sons of Israel, and then the kingdom and all of that. That's all God's plan to put back right what went wrong in that first opening preface. But that goes off the rails as well. And so mm -hmm. that prepares the way in the old covenant for the third part, which is the new covenant. And that's where it begins in Matthew, John the Baptist announcing Jesus is the one who's come to fulfill all the stuff that the old covenant was supposed to do, but didn't. And that third part, which is the center of scripture, tells about this transition from the old covenant to the promised new covenant that it's fulfillment. Then after that, Jesus dies, ascends, goes into heaven, sends the Holy Spirit. And that brings us into the fourth stage of scripture, which is now the church age or the end times. And that's everything from Pentecost until whenever Jesus returns. And then the Bible gives us a little glimpse, part five, just like at one, it gives us a little glimpse of where everything's headed with this vision of new creation. And it has vestiges of Eden. But it also has expansions of things that have happened along the way, like culture and art and, and all the glory of a city, but all the beauty and the unspoiledness of the garden. And they're combined in this image of the new creation. So that's kind of the whole story of the Bible. And we're in Act 4, mm -hmm. you and I. We live in Act 4, and we're waiting for the consummation of that. This fits in well with the, uh, the Greek understanding of the hero's journey. There's going to be catharsis and something that happens 
during that journey, but there's a precipitating event. Something breaks the cycle. Mm-hmm. There's a trauma mm-hmm. and sets the man on his journey that he is compelled to go do. And the whole story is about his desire to get home, but he never does get home. He arrives at a place that's new. that mm-hmm. can never really recapture what it was to be innocent or to be young or to be free of the slings and arrows that the world's been throwing at him. He's got the scars. So to cross over to that time when the hero comes home and the joy happens again and the new cycle begins, the person you have there is full of scars and full of wisdom and full of the joy and the relief of having crossed over and being received back by those who see the hero you become. Mm. We understand that in the Christian world because the early church understood that they were the ones being persecuted. They were being treated like the hero in all of those epics. They were going to barely make it out of the light if they did. But nonetheless, wherever they did go, God was going to bring them to life through all of that. So you've kind of defined in those five stages there a systematics. It is an expectation that you kind of put in front of people. This is what you can expect of God to reveal to you about these different things. So you do set the stage. Yeah. It's not obviously the only way of organizing Scripture, but you've done a really interesting job of, I would say, making it welcome to those who come from a Western philosophy and those coming from a tribal progression and taking hold of land and seizing going forward to something that you've never had before, but you are called to go find that Eden somewhere. Yeah, I think the important thing is to present scripture as a story because that's what it is it's not a system it's not a set of axioms it's not Mm -hmm. propositional truths it's not the eightfold path it's not any of these things that we would expect if we were going to create a philosophically coherent system of belief it's not that it's a story centered around a family that is then ultimately redefined in and re-identified in one like you said one hero Mm-hmm. And that is, for us, Jesus. Mm-hmm. I'm sure, no, C.S. Lewis was a huge fan of, of reading Scripture with an ear to the myths of the world. Yes. His whole thought was, God would not just drop something in entirely unexpected. He would set yeah. precedent for these things in every culture so that somehow every culture might seek and might find a resonance, a point of contact that they could make with the gospel story. So it wouldn't seem utterly alien to them when they heard it. And I think he's right. I think every culture, even the most warped or the most sinful cultures in terms of what they've evolved into, has an element that the gospel really illustrates well. Every person has a parent. Every culture has a history. Every truth. It's got something from which it grows. Yeah. Yeah. It all started with him, it comes back to him. But I said before, I really don't believe we ever go back the same. We have to go through in order to become. Right. And so the yeah. death itself is the end of our beginnings, and it's the beginning of all our becomings. That's in a figurative sense, but it's in a literal sense, too. I think if we really believe that eternity is something that's already in us now and will be continually unveiled to us as we proceed through this life and then on to the next life without this body and maybe once again reunited with this body, all those amazing metaphors that were taught through Scripture, we have great expectancy that whatever the next thing is will be better than the one we're yeah. in now. Yes, yeah, absolutely. You know, James, what you're reminding us of is really, really important. Let's take a second here. You know how Compassion Radio has been involved for years in issues of refugee dignity and opportunity. Broadly speaking, by the time they've stumbled into a refugee camp, they've experienced a profound amount of trauma. After that, only a very slim section of the community ever makes it to safe haven in a stable country like the U.S. For those who do, they're always faced with the reality that they will probably never see their home or their family again. 
Frankly, the response of many in the West has been sorely lacking in basic empathy and concern. Even in the church, I mean, seriously, the Christians in America have by and large bought into a political frame of reference for all refugees and immigrants. And sadly, we've grown very comfortable with othering and vilifying anybody that we perceive as a potential threat, whether they are or not. And we can't be bothered to find out the real story behind the very slanted quote-unquote news that we find on our social media feeds or our preferred cable channels. It's really a dangerous time for telling the truth and challenging this anti-immigrant rhetoric. But we must. So for you, James, why is it so important to spend so much time and energy teaching immigrant kids to respect and use their own bodies in a way that keeps them safe and protects those likely to be victimized simply for things like, I don't know, the color of their skin, the accent of their speech, or their identity as a foreign-born kid, to not promote violence or lash out, and how, above all else, to not fear. Yeah, it's incredibly important because of what martial arts has been in my life. I started martial arts when I was eight years old, and it was the one sport that I really did excel at because it wasn't just a game. It wasn't just a team activity. It can be a way of life. It can orient how you look at everything, how you view adversity, how you view challenges, how you handle fear, nerves, excitement, all of that stuff. So I know the benefits from 30 plus years of my own martial arts life. And I also know that it's not cheap. Hmm. Martial arts lessons at a good academy can run, mm. depending on where you are, anywhere from, you know, 75, 80, hundred dollars a month up to 200, $300 a month per person. So I knew that martial arts is good for everyone, but it's not accessible to everyone. So that was part one of it. Number two was like you said, when the Syrian refugee crisis was at its peak, I was seeing how the Christian culture, in large part, there are exceptions. There are always mm -hmm. exceptions. And thankfully, they're more than we realize because they don't, they don't get a lot of press. But the loudest voices in especially evangelicalism were treating or speaking of refugees as a problem, as a mm -hmm. danger, as an infestation. I mean, this is Holocaust language. This is right. the language that led to what eventually blew up into full-scale genocide in Europe, speaking of the Jewish people this way. So when you start describing a group of people as an infestation, you are sowing the seeds of what could become a much worse treatment in the very near future. Yeah. So I wanted one to speak out against that. You know, my social media, I used very regularly to advocate for seeing refugees and immigrants and people from other countries as just as much in the image of God as you or I. Mm -hmm. But I also wanted to do something tangibly. This was 2014. And I was in Bethlehem at the uh, Christ at the Checkpoint conference. Mm -hmm. And after the conference was over, I was walking through the Ida refugee camp. During the conference, there had been skirmishes between kids from the Ida camp, refugee kids in Bethlehem, and the IDF, the Israeli soldier. And there had mm. been these back and forth, one side throwing rocks, the other side shooting tear gas. And I got to see it flare up probably three times that week, like right in front of the hotel where we were having the conference. So the last day I was walking through the refugee camp and I was just looking around, talking to one of the guys, Palestinian who was there with me. And just talking about the things like the, the feelings of hopelessness mm -hmm. when you're in your fourth, maybe fifth generation, depending on the family of refugees, yeah. you don't have a land to call your own, a people to call your own. You just, it's just a constant state of being homeless, so to speak. Yeah. 
And it generates this either extreme motivation on the part of some or extreme despair and nihilism, right. basically, where nothing matters. So I'm just going to go throw rocks at these soldiers and I'm going to, you know, create havoc. If nothing matters, then, you know, it leads to a dark place for some people. So I remember thinking, I wish I could come and just do a camp here, a jujitsu camp mm. where these kids, instead of throwing rocks, they get to throw each other. And instead of channeling that aggression into anger, they can channel that anger and that aggression in a healthy way and then look towards like competition or towards developing their own businesses or it just all those intangibles that I've seen the martial arts be able to give to people. So this was all swirling in my head. And I, I wrote up a proposal, BJJ in Bethlehem. I wanted to get it started. And I just prayed, God, you'll have to open the door because there's a lot of red tape and logistics and money. And I don't have any of those things. When I got back here to Charlotte, I realized Charlotte is a hub city for refugee resettlement in America. And we have a large number of refugees in a certain part of Charlotte. So I teamed up with a local ministry at the time that did refugee outreach and said, would there be a need for an after-school or a weekly self-defense anti-bullying program? We have to wrap it up with this segment right now, but if you can give me one more, I'd love to continue on this journey with you, and you can finally get us across that finish line into the New Testament, so to speak, if you don't mind joining us again on Compassion Radio. Sure. Compassion Radio will continue to keep bringing you encouragement from the Word, inspiring stories from the front lines of faith, and awesome opportunities to make a difference for the kingdom around the world. But we need your help right now to continue doing just that. Remember, none of this is possible without you. Just call us at 1-800-868-2478. Write us at Compassion Radio, P.O. Box 2770, Orange, California, 92859. Text the word COMPASSION to 53445. Or make your gift through our website, CompassionRadio.com. We need you, friend, so contact us today.